I'm getting more breaking news. This, this, this is the D-Word Podcast with Dion G. Welcome to the D-Word Podcast. If you've been following my podcast, you know that we talk about a lot of things in life that you and I can relate to. And sometimes we get some prominent people on the podcast to share their views. And it's all about empowering us, both you and I. Now, a lot of us may have had a history in our life where we've been through situations that we feel like we don't want to go back and think about it because it was a bad moment in our life. I've shared a lot about my personal life in my podcast, and I've shared how some of the decisions I made made me stronger, some of them made me better, but I had to accept them and I had to talk about them. But today I decided to get somebody professional in. Uh, this person is a mindset and performance coach, and I have to quote this, right? This person helps purpose-driven achievers elevate their results in life. Now, uh, we're going to read her bio first before I introduce her because she's such an interesting person in the bio. And I didn't want to read it off um, Google, so I asked the person, give it to me. So Polly Bateman is a straight talking, empathetic, and disarmingly humorous mindset and performance mentor. Uh, Polly Bateman is here to disrupt your beliefs and break through the self-imposed barriers that limit your potential. Our clients come from all walks of life, from entrepreneurs and C-suite executives uh, through to public figures and world-class athletes. With that being said, and that interesting bio, Polly Bateman, welcome to the D Word Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Right. Now, now we came across each other on a clubhouse room and from the first time I spoke to you, I was like, wow, I got to get this person on the podcast because you have so much to share and, and so much to, to, we can learn from. So let's start with you, Polly Bateman. Uh, tell us more about yourself, uh, where you're from and how did you get into the field you're in right now? Great question. I originally started uh, my life training with a very big retail company over here. I left education, didn't want to go to university, couldn't bear the idea of being poor, but I was also really thinking that I wouldn't do very well there. I had decided back then that I was stupid. So I became a kind of entrepreneur because <laughs> that's what stupid people do, right? <laughs> so in fact, I did hear something very funny yesterday. I think it was when somebody said, yeah, entrepreneurs work 90 hours a week for themselves so they don't have to work 40 for someone else. And it really made me laugh because that is the entrepreneurial life for a lot of people, which doesn't quite add up as the most intelligent step, but it is what people do. So, yeah, I worked for myself for the next 10 years and then uh, took a job, which was a bit of a surprise. Um, I pretty much all my businesses had kept people at arm's length and were really just business focused anything from renting out property to uh, owning some hackney carriage taxi licenses and renting those out through to owning a lunch delivery service which was great because I didn't have to deal with people <laughs> so anything like that and then somebody said to me one day I know a job that would really suit you and it's working within the military setting and it was called defense medical welfare service and it was to deal with the interface between military and medical and I was like oh this sounds interesting I'd like to go and do that. And I, I had the most incredible four years when I realized I actually did love people. I don't know if it's because they were naked and in bed and below me that I felt so in control. <laughs> 
but I did have a lot of fun in that job. I traveled the world. I did a tour in Iraq. Um, I worked out in Germany for four years. It was an amazing role. And on the back of that, met and married my husband and fell in love with a military man, which I swore I wouldn't do. But I did. I didn't get out enough, obviously. And so one of us had to like move into being um, more, you know, well, both of us were mobile and one of us had to give that up. It was never going to be him. And as I knew I was going to have children at some point, I thought, you know what, I'll go with this because actually I just want to be with him anyway. I was de desperately in love in the beginning. So at that point, I trained up as a coach and I was a coach for 11 years through that process. When you say I, a coach, you, you mean... Just, just a, a bog standard coaching certification. I mean, when I say bog standard, it was a good one. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a tenor off the internet. <laughs> it was a full on course um, certified with the coaching academy. It was a long, a long year that we studied and we had to do lots of live coaching. We had to fill in modules and stuff like that. So I did that in 2006. And then over the next few years, slowly added different things to it, like specialized in phobias and anxieties and NLP, bit of clinical hypnotherapy around weight loss, did some psychoneuroimmunology classes, you know, and really sort of began to see how the mind and body were connected. But, and here's the big but, I didn't realize how much my life wasn't working until 2016. I'd actually had, we'd had our, our son and our son, uh, because I'm in a military uh, marriage to a person who moves every 18 months to two years, we had a very fully mobile life. So at eight years old, he went off to boarding school, which broke my heart. He was fine with it, by the way, just in case the listeners are like, how could she do that? He loved it because as an only child, he couldn't wait to get in like yeah. a, a big gang of brothers. I was the one driving back down the driveway, sobbing, like, oh, I left him behind. Um, and at the same time, Within two months, my husband went away for a whole year to the Middle East. And I was left on my own in a new location, uh, close to Harry's school, but far from any of my friends and family. And I didn't really know the neighbors and I wasn't connected to the base. We weren't there because we weren't based there. We were there because it was the location I had picked while Tom was away and, and for, for purposes of the school. And that's when, as the year went on, I recognized how lonely I was. And the favorite thing that we love to do as human beings is look outside of ourselves for reasons. And as I'm scanning the horizon for like, why does my life not work? It looked like my husband. And of course we love to blame. We can blame, we look outside of ourselves for what's going on. And I looked outside and I went, I love you. I actually really like you, but my life doesn't work. And I think it's because of you. So <laughs> I thought that I was going to have to like, separate and go and find a life that did work and you know I'm being quite light-hearted about it but there was some deep soul searching and I was a very unhappy and very lonely human being in that year so there's more to that but not necessary for the purposes of the quick you know um, summary here and in the process of going away to really dig into how I could take my business to another level I discovered it wasn't Tom it was me so I discovered by really diving into why I show up the way I do in the world, that why I do what I do, think what I think and act the way I act is all down to the way we get coded as children. It's all down to the way we are taught uh, through cause and effect and right and wrong. And if the effect is unpleasant and, the, and, and, the, and you're on the wrong side of right and wrong, then it's really uncomfortable. And human beings will spend all their effort and energy into looking good and being right. And that's normal because that's what keeps you in the tribe. You're primevally set to do that. So there's nothing wrong with it, but it does mean that you're often a victim of what you're dealing with rather than actually the master of your own destiny.
So that's what brought me to today. In the process of finding out that it wasn't actually my husband, I actually became a much better coach. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Polly, today's podcast is te- themed, how does our past control our now? And uh, maybe somebody who's who's listening to this, to this podcast is saying, hey, you know, that is me. I have a lot of trauma from my past childhood, maybe my teenage years. Maybe that's affected the way I think as an adult. Um, if that is you today, don't worry. By the end of this podcast, we may give you some insight uh, about a few ways of how you can even cope with it and how you can deal with it. Hopefully we can. So, so Polly, when, when someone says your past, you know, I have good and bad memories of my past, especially my childhood. Um, but when one dissects there now, um, you always look at the good of your past, but not the challenges or the negative things that went through and how could you learn from it? Uh, how do you take that, that question? Hmm. So I had a very challenging childhood for all sorts of reasons. Um, my mother was very young when she had me. And she, when I was about five years old, my father wasn't around at all. And when I was about five years Five years old, as I said, she got with my stepfather, who was going to be in our lives for the next sort of eight to 10 years. And he was a very uh, aggressive and uh, violent man. And I have nothing but empathy for him. So I don't want to paint him as the bad person here. You know, I'm wise enough and old enough now to have reflected back on some of the things he said to me when I was younger and understand that he came from this. That was the landscape he came from. And he just didn't know how to navigate out of it more powerfully. Um, And I remember, you know, as a child myself saying, this is going to stop with me. I, I am not passing this button on. It's like I had an inner wisdom that knew that this was something to tackle and deal with. Um, you asked, uh, how does the past impact us? I think it impacts us in ways that we know and ways that we absolutely don't. And the ways that it impacts us unknowingly, subconsciously, is far greater than consciously. I'm going to give you an example. And this is all to do with the fact that the brain is not even fully developed by the time you are until you're in your 20s. So it's an, a very immature brain that is trying to handle the situations that it's dealing with when it's young. So if you have a six year old child who's in the classroom and they love this teacher and they want to answer the question and they've got their hand up and it's like, pick me, pick me. And the teacher picks them and they get it wrong. Everybody laughs. Like if you haven't had that happen to you, you have seen that and know of that situation where every kids are cruel sometimes and they just kind of giggle. They're giggling because they're nervous and they're glad it wasn't them. Anyway, the teacher moves on and it doesn't look like anything much happened there, but quite a lot happened there. The child who was left feeling uncomfortable, who went, oh, I got that wrong. They're on the wrong side of that right-wrong equation and the effect was unpleasant and they look at themselves as the cause. So that experience immediately gets stored in their limbic reptile brain and it's stored as something to avoid unless they're the class joker in which case they didn't and you know that's their their setup is different nine times out of ten it gets stored as something to avoid Mm. 30 years later that guy could sit in a meeting and he's listening to everything that's going on and he thinks he's listening he knows he's not keen on saying something and he's struggling with the idea of speaking up he doesn't know why but i can tell you why the modern day version 
of checking out for lions and snakes in the grass and stuff like that is scanning the environment, which is what your brain is always doing. It's your watchtower. It's scanning the environment. It's scanning the circumstances you're in. And it's quickly looking back through its encyclopedia of experiences. And it doesn't even care if find something that's not even a 90, you know, an 80% match. It will pull on what it can match things up with roughly and will then use that information to inform you how to behave in the now. It's projected forward already. It isn't even out there in the past. It's out there in the future. It's quickly run through scenarios and then said, yeah, best thing to do right now, keep quiet. And then the person leaves the meeting and sometimes says, I could have said that. I need that answer. I don't know why I don't speak up. I just don't like it. But they don't know why they don't like it because they weren't born like that. They became like that. So that's how our past can control our future in ways that we never even knew. And that's a, it, it's what I call our blind spots. And it's how your identity gets formed and your identity is what runs your day. Now, you said you spoke about that, that the classroom situation, which is something that we all can relate. I've seen that. Yeah. I, I wasn't that kid. I was the kid raising my hand. Okay. Pick me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, but with that being said, does it always work with just um, the day-to-day stuff? Can this also evolve around how your parents treated you? Oh my God, completely. Yeah. You know, I, um, I've worked with all sorts of people and I've trained with all sorts of people. So it's really interesting listening to the circumstances and the stories that come out yeah. and, you know, how they can, how, how they can impact your whole way of being later. You know, if you feel that you, um, I remember very specifically somebody leaning down towards me when I was seven years old and saying, you're a chatterbox. You are. And at school, I felt very free and very much like I could just be who I was. But at home, because it was a very stressed environment and people were feeling red raw all the time, I had been told that children should be quiet and not heard and only speak to when spoken to. And now that didn't that wasn't all the time, but it certainly was when emotions were running higher and people were feeling more tense. So the minute at school, somebody said to me in what was a safe environment for me, where I had no previous kind of... um, experiences of things being awkward and uncomfortable the minute that person told me and I can't remember who his name was it was I had a few different schools my mother moved around a lot um but I remember that I immediately had a sense of shame and shock and horror and yet it was such an innocent comment but because we never know the landscape of the person that we're talking to you know we never always understand the impact of what we're saying so for me when he said that that was a threat not him threatening me but it was like oh dear I need to do something about that. Being a chatterbox is dangerous, you know? And so, yes, that was a caregiver who was, as they call it these days, you know, being terribly politically correct, but a teacher who was probably very kind and very sweet and was just trying to acknowledge me in some way. But I took it as a totally negative comment. I didn't feel negative from him. I just worried about it and interpreted it because I was being seriously impacted by how my parents were being at home for sure. And even sometimes we can be impacted by somebody when they're not there. So my own father, my mother was, um, got accidentally pregnant with me. She was forced to marry him and she ran away with me when I was just a few months old. And that's okay, you know, I get that. We can all find ourselves in situations we don't wanna be in and we all made mistakes. I have no issues about that. But my father was apparently terribly hurt and as a result, didn't want anything to do with uh, paying for me if he couldn't be around me. 
And so I was very conscious through conversation because kids hear way more than we think that my father wasn't paying any maintenance and wasn't having anything to do with me. Um, and I also knew that he wasn't showing up when I needed him. You know, when when my stepfather was angry and violent and abusive, where was my dad? Why was he not rescuing me? And just that sheer absence, what a child's brain will do is they will color in the gaps with what they think is going on. And so many children will blame themselves. And what I decided on a very deep and subconscious level was that I was pretty unlovable because if I wasn't unlovable, my father would have been there. And then also if I was more lovable and, and more worthy, my stepfather wouldn't have been so cross. And if I was more lovable and more worthy, my mum wouldn't be so sad right now because she was constantly sort of dealing with it, you know. And so, you know, at the end of the day, and by the way, you know, more brothers came along. I'm, I'm a girl who's got six brothers. I mean, like, woof, go figure. Yeah. Two are actually <laughs> brave. I'm the head of them all, as, as I like to say. They're like, no, 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 you're just older. <laughs> so two of them are actually with my biological father and then the, um, sorry, yeah, two of them that three are with my mother and one then got married in with the man that my mother's now married to. So, yeah six brothers lucky me <laughs> so thank god i'm an alpha female you guys could play wwe at home you got enough, mm -hmm. enough members in the team there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so so polly when you when you just to to pause in that moment for just a bit i think that i've come across a lot of people um some of them friends who had dysfunctional family environments and I even know a few people during childhood who didn't have the best of both, whether it was in school, whether it was at friends, and definitely not at home. And I've seen the lasting effect as they're adults. I mean, I, one of them I came across in a high school reunion, and we chatted for a moment, and I could see the elements of, of whatever happened in high school is still in this person, even though he's much older now. He has kids, he's married, he's a professional, but that image is still like stamped. It's there. Uh, with people like that in society today, where a lot of people go through life saying, I'm strong enough. And you know, a lot of people hide behind their job and they feel like I'm, I'm good at what I do. I don't have to deal with this. And there's, there's this ignorance towards, I don't have to deal with my past because I'm older. How does one um, come to terms with dealing with your past and how does one accept all those things that have happened? Obviously the bad we're talking about. How does one do that? Oh, that's a meaty question. That's like a whole program with me. <laughs> you know, it's a great <laughs> question point. because there is, a, there, you know, there, you can become more than your past would ever let you be because your past is, you know, you're, you're ultimately your ego. People get a bit chewed up about the word ego like it's some kind of dirty word actually your ego is what gets you out of bed every day and it's also there looking after you trying to keep you safe and so you know it can get tainted when we get someone who's a bit ego driven and they're like I am something I am something please know I am something but actually even that when they're being a pain in the ass and bigging themselves up comes from a place of smallness that comes from a place of a hurt child so how you get past it is you've got to take yourself on I mean, this is essentially what happened to me. I had trained up as a coach, but I wasn't past my past. And then what I had to do in 2016 was start work of getting past myself, you know, understanding how I had been formed the way I had been, what was driving me. And it's as you learn about yourself, as you unlock, you know, you 
by the way, that's that's challenging to do on your own. I would suggest a lot of people go and get a mentor, you know, get a mentor or someone to, to help you break that down. Um, and there are great books that you can read. A really great book that would lend itself well to this would be Psycho-Cybernetics by a guy called Maxwell Maltz. And you want to get the updated version of that. I mean, I, I literally have that on my desk. And as you can see, it's well read and well marked. But that's a really great book. I have it on my desk because I run a book club for that at the moment. But that's all about how the self-image gets formed and then how you live and die by that self-image, you know, as if it's the only version of you. And it's not. And when when we are operating with all these blind spots about why we are the way we are, I mean, I want you to imagine it's like walking into a room and there's a mirror on the wall just over in one angle, you know, on one part, like on a chimney breast, for example, rather than the whole wall. And you can see into the mirror and you can see what the mirror will reflect from where you're stood. But that's all you can see if you stand still. If you move further into the room, you'll get a greater reflection in the mirror. But again, whatever angle you're standing at will only give you that reflection. So I want you to think of it as like standing in a perspective or standing in a point of view about yourself. If you stay stuck in one place about it, then you're only ever going to get one reflection back or one, one set of sort of uh, one degree of view, you know, and I don't mean one degree. I mean, one version, one, yeah. whether it's a 90 degree or 45 degree. And so really taking yourself on and diving into your identity and how you came to be the way you are is the process of digging in and discovering a greater view. And the great thing about learning something about yourself is you can't unlearn it. Once you've seen something, it's like looking for something on your desk. Once you spot the stapler in the middle of the desk, you can't unsee it. And you can't believe that you couldn't see it and why you were like looking straight past it and in all the drawers. You're like, there it was, <laughs> you know. Um, but people only see what they're focused on. And I'll give you a great example of this. In one of my training courses, they gave us a video and there were people dressed in black dancing, just completely in black and people dressed completely in white dancing. And what they said to the left hand side of the room is spot all the people you can who are dancing dressed in black. How many are there? And you guys over here on the other side, spot all the people who are dancing in white. See how many there are. And they gave us 10 seconds to do this. Stopped it after 10 seconds. People are shouting out different numbers. And it was actually irrelevant. What they were proving was that we only see what we're looking for because they then said to us, great, thank you for all the numbers. I'm not sure what the actual number is. Just wondering if anybody saw the chimpanzee that went through the middle on a skateboard. And we were like, uh, what? <laughs> and then they replayed the video. And there was a chimpanzee on a skateboard. It's like, how did we miss that? All of us missed it because you are always only looking for what you think you're going to see. Yeah. So actually, you know, it's really worth your while digging into how you came to be the way you are, because you have a limited perspective based on your experiences to date. And the wider you could take that perspective, the more possibility comes into your life, the more opportunity, because you see things differently. I love that analogy. It's like because a lot of us, obviously, we would would we take it for granted as to whatever situations, especially things that we can't control. And when anxiety steps in, um, you know, especially with life situations where, if you put that into perspective, like what we see and what we know, we have a problem. Okay, we're stressed. Oh my word! Now you only know how to deal with it based on what you've done within the past, but not a new way of looking at it. Uh, yeah. So. So maybe, maybe now it's a good time for us to give us some tools. How does one deal with, with situations where 
it's stressful, especially when you are immune to certain things. Just say you are intimidated to talking to people in public because of maybe childhood trauma, or maybe you know you, you have a fear of speaking. You get you get into these nervous situations. I've come across people like that, especially um, whenever I MC an event. People say I'm a bit nervous on stage. I'm like, why are you nervous on stage? The same people will be the same people you're speaking to normally. The only difference is you have a microphone. Why would you be nervous? You know, why would you be nervous? So how, give us some tools. Let, let's, let's get into the crust of this now. How, how do we deal with these situations? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, so the first thing that happens when we're nervous about something is we start imagining how it's going to go. Yeah. And imagination is just negative daydreaming. Most people don't realize that. They are worrying is negative daydreaming. I like that. What, imagination, negative daydreaming. That's that's tweetable. Well, negative imagination, because imagination <laughs> is a powerful tool. So yes. let me just it's worrying. Worrying is negative daydreaming. That's the thing to think of because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, but where the mind goes, the energy flows. So what you want to be really careful of is the situations that you're creating in your head. Right. Because if you're worrying about something, you're running through all the scenarios. And that's where all the focus and time and effort and energy is going to and stress. And of course, the minute we're stressed, our perception narrows. We know this physically is a reality in our brain. The chemicals change and suddenly we can't see as much. So our fear of failure and getting it wrong is so high that that's what there is to tackle first. You know, because some of the greatest people out there like, um, I don't know how well Pete, David Beckham is known over in... Oh, no, um, he's very known. He's very okay, well known. Okay, I'm, not, I'm just not making assumptions that he's <laughs> everywhere, but he is everywhere, right? All but right. yeah, so David Beckham, you know, very famously talks about the fact that when he was practicing his kicks as a child, he would practice and practice and practice and practice. And, you know, it is absolutely certain, despite the length of his career, that he'll have had more duff kicks than good kicks. You know, he used to stand with his father, used to stand in front of a grilled window and he'd have to kick the ball so that the ball went round the back of his dad. I'm sure I can't imagine how many times it must have hit his father first. But, you know, he, they did this for hours. And then we've got a, a, a brand of uh, Hoover or vacuum or however you say it. But where I'm so used to my American audience now, and they're like, what's a Hoover? <laughs> so, <laughs> which is what we call it in England. But, they, you know, Dyson, Richard Dyson, he had 5,400 and something prototypes before he got the vacuumless, the bagless Hoover right. I mean, that's a lot of failure. Yeah. And, and his persistence. So we're so scared of failure, but we don't actually some reframing that to understand that failure is part of the success. You've got to see what doesn't work to see what does work. And so many people have this in business as well. They're so scared of failure. And it's partly the way we're educated. And I don't want to get onto a rant about education because I do sometimes, but we're educated by front loading our, our, our front of our brain with information and then expecting us to recall it in an exam setting, which is deeply stressful when our perception is narrowed and it's so screwed up. Um, and it's not the way children naturally learn. Children learn through experience. So that brings me on to my second tool. First of all, reframe getting it wrong. Getting it wrong is really not a problem. It's part of getting it right. Yeah. Like I just you know, told you, I've just hosted my first ever clubhouse room. I, I didn't even know how to end the room. I've never ended a room. So I kind of hung there in the space for a minute till somebody helped me out. <laughs> so, but it doesn't matter, you know, I'll now know how to end a room. So that's part of the process of learning. 
The second thing is experiencing something and to, to really find um, how to get something right, you've got to experience the model of going through the process, mm. you know, and when something fits and, and slots into place and we get it right, like when you're learning not to, to roller skate or ice skate, you know, you feel all wobbly and then suddenly you start moving and then you feel more powerful or skiing or anything like that. I mean, it's the same with walking, by the way, which every single one of us has done. We've learned to walk. And when we're first learning to walk, we're terrible at it. Thank God we're not fully conscious at that point, because if we were, we'd probably give up and say, she's so much better at it than me. I'm just going to sit here. I, I look like so stupid when I walk. I mean, like think about babies and how they're waddling and they, you know, they, <laughs> they can't do it very well and they fall over, but they are unconscious of their sort of self-image and their self-awareness. So they yeah. just get back up and keep trying. So that's the other thing. And the last thing I would say is, Imagine it working. So you know this, like high performance people sometimes that when they've become great public speakers and stuff, they imagine themselves on the stage. They imagine it going well and they imagine the microphone, how they'll sound. They practice their speech. And, you know, top athletes, one of the things that they do is they run the videotape of them winning the race in their head. Michael Phillips is um, is famous for this in that this is what he used to do before he started swimming. He'd have 45 minutes where he shut down, he'd put his music on, he'd close his eyes, and then he'd begin to, to do the swim. Every stroke he would imagine with great accuracy. And the day he broke the world record, he had actually got water in his goggles. He dived in, he knew something was wrong straight away. So he shut his eyes because he's so used to swimming like this in his head anyway. And he just repeated it and just pulled as hard as he could swimming with his eyes shut, going through the mental process that he'd run through again and again and again. Mm. And he broke a bloody world record. Mm. So, you know, practice what you want to do in your head successfully. Yeah. Don't yeah. be afraid of fear. Reframe the fear. And, you know, just really get that um, failure is part of the process. If you mm. don't fail, then you ain't learning. Yeah. You know, a, a lot, a lot. Of what you're sharing also also involves with accepting a lot of things that you know. Uh, I think, like when you look at people's past. I mean, I could talk from my perspective. Um, I had to make career goal changes by the time I was 17. Uh, I had a career plan for me, and I had. I for many of you that don't know the story, I'll give you a quick summary. Uh, many of you may have heard it before, but I, I came from a family where I have an older sibling, who's 21 years older than me. And uh, he stole everything from my family. And my mom and dad and I, we were basically homeless. We And by, the, by this time, I was 15 years old. So I already was a child. And at that time, I didn't understand the dynamics of what was going on. All I understood was, somebody stole something. We don't have this. Now we got to hustle. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that was me. I I'm grateful you know, that I didn't get traumatized by it and, and give up like most people would say, hey, you know, life is over. No, I, it was almost saying hello to me, life was over. But instead, I proactively said, how am I going to pick up the pieces, even as a kid, and figure out what I'm going to do with my life? I'm not going to let the negative situation challenge me or, 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 or disrupt your words, disrupt where I'm supposed to be. The only benefit was if I didn't accept it, what had happened. And I challenged the system and said, I should be getting handouts like all my other friends out of high school. I should be getting this out of life. I should be getting that. And that entitled spirit, 
I'm glad I didn't have that. But what I'm grateful for is that the acceptance was already there. I can't control this. The situation happened. It is what it is. I need to accept it, but I need to ask myself, what can I learn from this? I can learn that something's not guaranteed. Uh, sometimes you cannot control what people are feeling. Sometimes money can make people greedy. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but more importantly, if you don't get over the situation and you don't understand the situation, you need to talk to somebody who's not willing to judge you, but actually help you and assist you through it. So that was my example, but I'm, I'm like one rare case identifying it. I don't know. Uh, but I'm grateful that if I didn't identify it, I mean, my parents never chatted to me about it. I mean, they never chatted to me about the fact that, hey, this was wrong. I mean, now I'm an adult. I look at the situation and I say, okay, they, they could have done dealt with it differently. They could have done it this way. But I'm glad that if, if I never really identify it at that age, I'd be in a very different place right now. I don't know. Mm. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think that you were very fortunate. I think when we're younger and we're going through periods of great adversity, like I was, you know, I made a yeah. plan when I was younger. And actually, it's really funny. Some of those plans are coming to fruition now. Yeah. You know, one of the plans I made was that this 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 crap would stop with me. I was absolutely, I'm not going to pass this on. And, um, you know, I, I don't hit my son and I have never hit my son. Um, I think I say that's a, a small white lie just because if he was ever listening, he might, you have done a couple of times, mum, but they're more like, you know, oi, like that, as opposed to, um, the kind of sort of beating that I had as a child, you know, and, and I understand that great frustration. I think when we're younger, we're quite resilient because, you know, we're, we've got that sort of, we haven't been knocked down so many times that we're tired and don't want to get up anymore. We've just got that, that natural bounce back resilience unfortunately more and more these days there are more and more children suffering from mental health issues and that wasn't a big thing when I was a young child you know and I think that we weren't so impacted by mental health back then because we didn't have social media in the same way we hadn't had whatever you know all the other things and all the other arguments out there like pesticides in the soil and how that's taking the nutrients out of it and whether that was part of it and how that feeds our microbiome I'm also a certified health coach so I do kind of know what I'm talking about on that but um you know and all the you know there's so many factors that are leading to it so I think we have resilience and I think also your ignorance was bliss in, in many senses you had no real understanding that you had just been potentially wronged you know and and I think that you had something that I'm going to say is actually one of the things a tool that we can use and it's called beginner's mindset and a beginner's mindset is somebody who has no idea how to solve a problem or what this particular utensil is for and then kind of mucks about with it to see and if you ever want to see a beginner's mindset in action give a child a can opener or something like that before they know it's a can opener you know or a, a utensil from the kitchen I have walked in a couple of times to say to my son what are you doing and he's using something not for what it's meant for <laughs> but successfully achieving something yeah. <laughs> because he has a beginner's mindset um and he he's you know, he's also children are naturally curious. One of the first things he does, it, I find it deeply frustrating, but I've learned to laugh at it, is the minute he gets something, he takes it apart because he wants to see how it was put together. So he's done that with his scooter. He's done it with his BB gun. I'm like, really? You're taking it apart? We've had it 10 minutes. He's like, I just want to see how it's put together, mummy. You know, <laughs> a couple of times we have had to go back to the shop and get repairs done. But, you know, it is that deep natural curiosity and not having that killed within us. So when we're older, get curious, get a beginner's mindset, 
Understand that what you know about the situation is just what you know. It's not all there is to know, yes. you know, and get like throw yourself into being more uh, open to other ideas. And if you can't find other ideas, ask other people because they'll shed light on it in a whole new way for you. Wow. Beginner's mindset. That is such a powerful thing. Hey, uh, so so just to just to recap what we've shared so far, and I think that whoever is checking out this podcast may have different uh, experiences in life. Uh, maybe just give us a blanket toolkit uh, overall for people to identify that there is certain things that can be changed, especially with our past. Maybe they didn't have a traumatic past. Maybe they assumed that their past was perfect. Um, how does one dissect that compared to what we've just talked about so far? Uh, it's a really great one because interestingly, um, uh, I watched, uh, this is a guy called John D. Martini, and I watched him in a, in a session once with somebody who was really aggrieved at the way their father, who had been a very mercurial man, who had really um, created a very stressful environment for him. And he said to this guy, uh, and, and this works both ways. So he said to this guy, okay, so I understand you, you cheesed off with your father and you feel like he stole your future from you or that he stole. He said, who was your best friend at school? And he said the name like Dave, let's go with the name Dave. I can't remember, but, and then he said, okay. And is this, did you want Dave's life? He went, yeah, I love Dave's dad. He said, okay, great. And tell me, he said, what's Dave doing today? He said, he's a policeman, you know, wife, house, car, 2.4, suburbia. Now the guy that was talking was a world-class comedian who traveled the world. And John D. Martini looked at him and said, is that the life you would want? He went, oh God, no, no way, God, no. <laughs> and he said, but if you'd had that upbringing, that's the life you would have had. Now there's nothing wrong with that life. The point is that the reason he loved his life was because he was the sum of his experiences. You just don't have to let them control you. And then to remember, if you've had a very good protective life, that doesn't mean that you now need to go out and get some trauma in it, but just recognize that you'll only have life from your perspective. Everything's worked for you so far. So sometimes, you know, I have seen people who've had things very, very comfortably. And when the, when the tires hit the road for them in something that, they, that goes wrong one day, they have no coping strategy. They have no tools and skill sets and experience to draw on to get out of there, you know, or they are um, like I have a couple of friends. They're married to each other. They so gravitated towards each other. They both came from very stable families, very monetary, uh, monetary aware families. So they're not loaded, but they are definitely really sensible with money and they're just really happy people. They found each other. They connected. They've made babies. They're married you know, and they are just really great, happy people to be around. Yeah. So there's nothing you don't always have to change something. It's just to know that your experience of life is just your experience of life. Mm. And therefore, it doesn't mean it sums up what's possible, what's available and what is reality. Everybody has their truth. And, you know, we've never seen this. I'm not going to be political here at all, but we've never seen this more famously than with the, the Meghan Markle and Harry interview. They had their version of events and other people have another version of events and both have truths to them. And then there's a truth that sits over the top that doesn't relate to anybody. The truth that nobody can see because you know there is a bigger picture sometimes that we can't see very clearly. So my whole point being is that, you know, I've got my version of events and I recognize that my version is my limitations. 
and other people have got theirs and that's their limitations. And that's why, you know, you'll see in high performance groups, those people will often club together because they'll get different perspectives and different ways of working because they recognize the limitations of just their perspective. Mm. So it's like, look outside of yourself because you know, you are not the sum total of everything. And there are many, many different ways. As, as my, I have two cats who always go, really? I think, I feel like they say this emotionally to me when I say there's more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Some, some amazing gems then. I think it definitely when I, when this podcast is done, I'm going to go back and write some notes myself because I know you're writing notes. If people are wondering, what, if you're watching the, the video podcast compared to the audio one, Polly is continuously writing. Uh, what yeah, is well, that? it's also to remember what to say sometimes because <laughs> I'll have about three ideas of what I want to say. I'll yeah. dive down one rabbit hole and then I can't remember what it was. So that's partly it too. Wow. Uh, so so the podcast was built around, you know, discovering your past. And I think, I think uh, just... I think I'm married now for four years. And one of the things my wife and I do talk about is some of the things we've had experienced in our life, not so much our childhood, maybe our teen years, because um, we both have very different life, um, life experiences. Um, but for example, like right now, as an adult, uh, certain situations I would go through, I would have the mental capabilities to understand it and not be stressed. And the certain things that she does that I would panic and she would stress. And until we both talk about it and say, hey, that is your trigger point that you find very difficult based on your past experiences. And same with me, vice versa. But it is key to identify what they are and how you can go about fixing it. Because you can't live your entire life just, I'm perfect. I don't have any problems. I'm okay. Uh, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? I think it's a great one because... So often what we like to say is like, how do I have a problem? You've got a problem. It's you. You shouldn't be doing it like that. You know, and we think that our way of doing things is the way. But, you know, when we get triggered, um, often we think that we're so there's there's two things here. So there's the three things from when we're growing up. There's also um, often when we get triggered, it's it, it is connected to something that we didn't get right when we were younger. And that's why it's triggering us. So it might look like we're arguing about how to load the dishwasher but it isn't really about the dishwasher. What we're really arguing about is like, will you stop telling me what to do? And I don't like it because my dad always used to tell me what to do and I never felt enough around him. And there are three core questions that are really important to us when we are little babies and we're very aware of them without actually being conscious of them. Okay, and we know this about babies. We know that they understand when they're safe or not safe sometimes. And we also know that they understand babies are born with very few fears. But we, we have, um, you know, there are studies done where they've known babies will stop crying in deeply dangerous situations because they know they've got to be quiet. So, and, they, and also their colon will clench when their tensions arise around them. So they're very aware of what's going on, albeit not conscious. So the first three kind of essences of awareness that a baby will have is, first of all, am I safe? And that's, that's the, the key Thing the baby needs to know at the beginning of its life am I safe and this is the first two years of a, of a person's life then then comes in on the back of that is now I I've established my safety issues am I loved and the baby wants to know if it's loved or not and the baby will look to see if it's loved and we know that whether how the baby's brain is formed is based on whether it gets affection and love and nurture in the right way and a baby that doesn't get that their brain is literally formed differently and then the last one is am I enough and it's an essence of it that obviously not walking around we don't have two-year-olds going am I enough 
That's not something that they're dealing with, but it is something that they're becoming aware of through that cause and effect and that right and wrong coding. So that enoughness, you know, here you are 30 years later and you put the cup in the dishwasher on the wrong side and your girlfriend or wife says to you, don't put it there. I've told you I don't like the cups there. And they're like, God, Jesus, the instant trigger doesn't belong here. The trigger is going back to something like you. If you were to stand there for a moment and say, how old do I really feel? You actually don't feel whatever the age you are today. You can pretty much go, oh, I probably feel around six right now. And it's something that's triggered you from before where you maybe felt, you know, all our parents, by the way, the parents job for the children is to sort of bugger them up in some way. <laughs> You know, they've got to give them something to deal with when they're older. But, you know, the point is to that there'll be something about me as a personality that will definitely be impacting my son today. And it doesn't mean I'm getting it wrong. It just means that I am impacting him in some way. So that's my point is that later on, Harry, sometimes I watch him when I start to talk about things and he kind of glazes over a bit. And I'm like, what have you just decided about this conversation? He's like, that it's going to be one of those long talks. He thinks I'm going to coach him. And so I'm like, okay, can you undecide that? Because I'm not, I just want to say this, you know, and I will learn to shorten it. So maybe my son will grow up. He has a very high EQ, but maybe he'll grow up and not particularly love coaching. Who knows what he'll do? Maybe he'll grow up and gravitate to it and just wants to do it for himself. <laughs> but, you know, the point is there'll be something I'm impacting him. Yeah. But the triggers that we have are not real. They are just triggers based on experiences we had when we were younger that we didn't enjoy. And it's worth just seeing that and recognizing what's the root trigger that's going on here. And when you can nail that, that's when you start to find real peace in life because that's when you start to not be controlled by your emotions. Wow. So Polly, uh, in summary, our, how our past controls are now, a quick, quick, I want to say quick reset of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Too much of Clubhouse. <laughs> quick yeah, reset the room. room. <laughs> <laughs> quick, quick recap. Uh, this is what happens when you chill out too much on, on Clubhouse. Um, just a quick recap. Uh, what are some of the ways to identify it and what are some of the ways uh, people can actually apply it in their life right about now? You do like to ask the big Sim questions, don't you? Simple one. <laughs> simple way. Simple way. Just like, I think that's a really good one that I just gave you is like recognize when you're triggered in life that it's not a truth, it's just a trigger. And if you can see you've just been triggered and it's not real, it's just how, because, you know, by the way, my husband used to roll his eyes and I used to make that mean something about myself. And then one day I realized it wouldn't have mattered who he married. He's an eye roller, full stop. So why am I making it mean something about me? How someone else is being is how they are. Whatever behavior they find acceptable or not acceptable in life is on them, not on you. But yet we make so much of it personal to ourselves. Like if I was enough, if I was more lovable, if I had longer legs, if I had bigger boobs, longer hair, whatever, more muscles, then I would be treated differently. No, how that person is treating you is how they treat people. That's on them. What's on you is just getting down and dirty with your own identity and working out how well do you feel when you feel triggered? And recognizing that your truth is not the whole truth. It's just your truth. It's just your perspective. It's your view in the mirror. And understanding that alone softens us enough to actually open up to what's being said around us. And one of my big top tips that I like to tell people, because it's an easy one to remember, is we've got two ears and one mouth. And just go focus on that, because we should be doing twice as much listening than we do speaking. 
And we'd all get along and rub along a lot better if we did that, because often we listen to reply. We don't often listen to hear. And if we just took away trying to be the answer for somebody sometimes and just said, wow, okay, what's that feel like for you? Wow, what's the impact? And just keep asking them questions. When the person feels truly heard, then they'll be able to hear you as well. And when we can really hear each other, we get connected. Wow. Polly Bateman. Wow. Thank you for being with us today on the D Word podcast. I promise you give us a lot of food for thought. And uh, if people want to check you out, I'm sure they can check you out on social media. You're always yes. on Clubhouse. <laughs> always on Clubhouse. It's, and I'm actually the same. A, a few years ago when I got my website, I couldn't get Polly Bateman. Somebody else has got that. And I was like, ah, that's my name. I want that. And she doesn't even use it, which is really annoying. But anyway, so somebody said, why don't you become the Polly Bateman? So that's my website. It's thepollybateman.com. And then I am at the Polly Bateman on all social media channels and including Duh. Clubhouse. So you can find <laughs> me everywhere. <laughs> you, you know what's weird? My name was always, was always taken on Facebook. There's like over... 150 Dion governors on Facebook. Um, wow. So I didn't even know that when Facebook first came out, for example, but I'm not a big Facebook person, but anyway, I had to change my name and then eventually Facebook verified me. I was like, okay, cool. They know that's the DJ guy. Okay. And on Twitter, same story, but how's this on Instagram? I couldn't get it on clubhouse. I was the first person to get my full name. So I was like, yeah, finally, finally, finally right. one I can keep, you know, <laughs> finally. Yeah. But it was really and nice. And yeah, you're my first Dion. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're my first Polly. So thank you very much for that. Uh, but it was really nice uh, chatting to you on, on the D Word podcast. I promise you, you gave me a lot of food for thought for my own personal self. And I'm sure uh, if someone's listening out there and who, who, who questions themselves, speak to somebody. If you are that person that says, you know what, I, I am what they're talking about in this podcast. I am the, exactly that person. I haven't really looked at my life properly. Speak to someone today. You're never too late to make those changes, but you need to identify it and speak to someone about it. Someone yeah, who you trust. Yeah. Don't be alone because so many people feel alone and loneliness is just a perception. It's not a reality. We're all connected. Yeah. Well, have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you, Polly, for, for being with us on the D-Word podcast. And it was really awesome. I'm sure we're going to get you again. Thank you. And that's your phone beeping. You got to go. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>